0: and dismiss our children, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 4, 1 through 7, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, Bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, the Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Father, we ask today, God, that you would open the eyes of our understanding. We sang one of the songs that said, I has not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. But you have given us the spirit so that we might know the things that have freely been given to us. And so we ask that that anointing that we have from you might teach us today. We have no need that any man should teach us, so we ask and we invite the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to convict us of sin and help us today, O Lord God, not to be hearers of the word, but doers of it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I wanted us to sing that beautiful hymn, How Great Thou Art. Before our teaching, and Jordan sort of alluded to it in his prayer, how humbling it is when you think that God, his son, not sparing, sent him to die. I scarce can take it in. The hymn writer had it absolutely right, didn't he? And when he returns to take us home... At his feet, we should humbly bow. This morning, this passage deals with unity. I think it's something we desperately need in Christianity. This church is not exempt from Satan's schemes. And his favorite scheme to defeat the work of God is to bring division. Paul wrote the letter to the, uh, the second letter to the Corinthians to restore the offender, and so that there would be love and unity in the church, and then he says, For we are not ignorant of Satan's devices. The book of Ephesians later on says, Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath, lest you give place to the devil. His strategy is is to cause disunity in the church, in the body of Christ, in the family of God. And we are to do everything we can to maintain that unity. Everything but compromising doctrinal purity. And we see that balance in this passage. We see that we're to endeavor, do all that we can to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace And then he reminds them of the doctrinal purity that is the foundation for peace, the foundation for unity. Jesus prayed in his great high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 that he would sanctify us by his truth. His word is truth. So God wants to sanctify us by biblical sound doctrine. And then we are to do everything within our power to preserve that unity, save compromise the truth. So I just want to read those lines again and just think about how humbling it is when we take all of this in. When I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce could take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. And when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart! Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, My God. How great thou art. So, humility is required for us to walk together in unity. This passage starts out with, I therefore. The word therefore is a conjunction and A grammarian would call it an inferential conjunction. In other words, he is drawing an inference based on logic, based on truth, based on facts, based on what you knowingly have experienced. That's what that therefore means. And Paul says, I'm going to take all the logic that I've just explained in three chapters I'm going to take all the doctrinal truth that I've just given you, and I'm going to take everything that you personally have experienced, and now I am going to exhort you to do something with it. This is the Christian life, isn't it? It's not about head knowledge. It's taking what God has given given to us, biblical truth, sound Bible doctrine, and then walking it out in everyday life. And this is what Paul wants us to do here. So he's drawing an inference from what he said in the previous two chapters. And this will produce humility. He wants them to appreciate all that they were before they came to Christ. He says, "I therefore, I want to beseech you because of all what I've just gone through. What were they before they came to know Christ? And We could just kind of go through the, the, the litany in our mind here. They were dead in their trespasses. They were walking according to the course of this age. They were conducting their lives under the influence of their mind and their carnal appetites. They were children of wrath, just as everybody else. I therefore beseech you to live out the Christian life now. What theology had they learned? They had learned about a mystery that was hidden before the ages and ages ago. It was hidden in God in Christ that God was going to reconcile in one body to Himself on the cross through the gospel, that Jew and Gentile would be of the same body. They would be partakers of the inheritance, equally sharing, that they would all have access to one God by one spirit. This is what they had freely given to them. And so Paul says, I, therefore, because of all that teaching, now live out the Christian life every single day. Paul exemplifies humility there in in, in this first verse. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord... I'm just a slave, and I'm a prisoner, and I'm in jail, and I am serving Christ, and I am living out my Christian life. And Paul says, there is no task, there is no calling, there's no position, there's no station in life where you cannot walk worthy to please God, and there is no task above any one of us. There is no job that's unworthy of the Christian We have Christians who are suffering all over the world. And I think that they would take it as an honor to suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ. To say, this is a worthy thing to do for my Savior. And Paul says, it is a worthy way to walk, even though I am a prisoner. And I am a prisoner in Christ. There's no task. There's no job. There's no calling that you and I can say, God, I'm unworthy of this. Why did you put this in my life? Because Paul exemplifies humility for you and I here. In verses 2 and 3, we've got about five reasons why we are to walk in a humble manner. First of all, he says it's a calling. You and I are to walk with humility because it is a calling. Now, how does God call you and I? God calls us through the gospel and through the power of the Holy Spirit. None of us had the wisdom to come to God and say, boy, I've got all this figured out. God has sent Christ to you and I. God has sent the gospel message to you and I. It is the Holy Spirit that woos and convicts us of our sin, and this is what we are called by God. Jesus tells a parable in Matthew chapter 22. And the parable is in the middle of a context of him working with the Pharisees and, and trying to get them to understand who he is, and they just keep rejecting and keep rejecting. So he tells this parable about the vineyard, and they just reject every messenger. And he finally he says, "You know what I'm going to do? I am going to destroy these vine dressers, and I'm going to give it to another nation, a nation that is bringing forth fruits of repentance." And then he says, have you never had read that parable? Have you never read the scripture? The stone which the builders have rejected. That's Jesus. The builders, that's the Pharisees, that's the religious foundation of the nation of Israel. The builders had rejected this stone is now the head of the corner. And this is marvelous in our eyes. And then Jesus says this, whoever falls on this stone, he will be broken. He's talking about humility. When you come to Christ, you come because you're broken. You come to Christ because you know you are depraved and that you need a Savior. You realize that you are poor in spirit. And you builders who have rejected me, I am going to fall on you and I will grind you to powder. And then the very next thing out of his mouth, he speaks another parable. And it's the parable of a wedding feast. And he invites people. And that's what the word calling means. You were invited to Christ. We ought to be humble because it is Christ who's invited us. Walk worthy of the calling. God invites you to this. And in this parable, everybody turns the invitation down. And he says, go out into the highways. Go out into the hedges. Compel them to fill my house. I want you to invite everybody. Everybody's welcome. Nobody's excluded. But then he says something that's almost paradoxical at the end. He says, many are called, many are invited, but few are chosen. Now, what did he mean by that? we have got to look at the context. The context is all about the Pharisees. Him inviting, him pleading, them rejecting. He's that cornerstone. Those who humble themselves are the ones he chooses to come into his feast. We know this because there was a man who refused to put on the wedding garment. That man would not humble himself and take what the master had already provided. And he says, I don't want your wedding garment. And the master says, Where is your garment that I provided for you? And the man was speechless. And that's the paradoxical thing about this. Many are called, but the chosen ones are those who will humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, and those are the one he exalts. He tells another parable that's basically the same thing. Two men are in the, in the synagogue. One's praying and says, I'm glad I'm not other, like other folks. That tax collector, another man, won't even lift up his head to heaven and says, be merciful to me, I am a sinner. Now, which one was chosen by God? It's easy to figure that one out, isn't it? For everyone who humbles himself is exalted. The one who exalts himself will be abased by God. So you and I ought to walk worthy because we've been invited. God has called us through the gospel and the death of his own son. So therefore, walk worthy. The word worthy is the Greek word axis. And so I kind of think of it like this, those old teeter-totters when you were a kid, and I was the skinny kid. I'm not anymore. (laughs) I'm a skinny old man now. (laughs) And those little teeter-totters, you could take these seats and you could just keep moving them back and moving them back. I mean, I had to be way on the backside. And my buddies, you know, they could sit wherever they want because I had to counterbalance that weight. And there was an axis in the middle where you would counterbalance that. And that's the Greek word worthy. So I've got to put on this side of the teeter-totter, Jesus, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the hope of glory an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for me, and then me, I've got to sit on the other side, a sinner who's lost and sold under my old carnal appetites, and now I've got to walk worthy of that. I've got to live out a life that meets out all that Jesus Christ has done for me. Now, that's quite a calling, isn't it? And you and I are called to do that. We've been invited to Jesus. So we're told to walk worthy. So that's the first point. The second one is how we do it. We do it with humility. Let's look at the passage with me. Walk worthy of the calling with all lowliness and meekness or gentleness with long-suffering, forbearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So humility is the first thing he, not, he mentions here. Humility is the absence of arrogance. Humility eliminates all boasting, self-serving, and envy. Humility, by its definition, is a deep sense of your own moral failure and a deep reverence for God's grace and mercy. That's the way we walk, worthy of our calling. There's nothing to boast about. Don't look at me. If you see anything good in me, as Paul said, it is not me, but it's Christ who works in me. The next thing, he says, meekness. Meekness is the quality of being easily imposed upon. Who? I don't like that. Gentleness. Easily imposed upon. I, I got things I want to do. I'm selfish by nature. And my wife asks me to do these things, and I'm not very gentle sometimes. In fact, she has to run up down the stairs because I'm not willing to do it sometimes. <laughs> this morning, we just were talking about getting the, some stuff, papers off the, the printer, and I was sitting down at the computer, and I was busy, and my wife was gentle And I said, can you go get that? I've got a Zoom call coming from Lebanon Baptist Church in about 10 minutes. And she says, I'll be glad to do that. And she was just as busy as I was because she's got the attribute of gentleness and easiness and easily to impose on. All of my sons grow up in a house where we never know what's going to happen from one minute to the next, and they've got to be easily imposed upon. They don't know if they're going to be running to the airport They don't know if they're going to be running stuff over to sit grandkids or whatever it is. And that's the way we walk worthy of the Lord. You don't look at it as an imposition when you're called to act and to serve someone else. I can't be bothered with that. No. We need to be gentle. We need to be easily entreated. The next thing that Paul says here, long-suffering. Two Greek words put together, "macro," which means big, and thuma, where we get the word thermos. It means long to get hot. That's the way we walk worthy of our calling. You think about Jesus and how long He had. In fact, He uses that term, how long will I have to put up with this generation? How long will I have to put up with you disciples? Our Lord is long suffering. You think about how evil this world is and why Jesus hasn't come back? It's because he's long suffering. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's a good thing I'm not in charge cuz I would have came back about 2000 years ago. <laughs> long suffering. Patient, allowing your emotions to be ruled by the Holy Spirit. This isn't a thing of, this is not a work of the flesh. In fact, the flesh over in Galatians, right, Nancy? Outbursts of wrath. The fruit of the Spirit, temperance, self control. That's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit makes us long suffering. And we do this long-suffering, and the next word is up actually a participle, which is modifying long-suffering. How am I long in my suffering? And the next word tells us by, and you could insert that word, it's not translated, but it's a modal participle telling how I am lost suffering. And you notice it's an ing on the end of it, bearing with one another in love. And this isn't just talking about people's little idiosyncrasies and their little quirks and their little odd ways of doing things. I'll just put up with that guy. That's just his weird way of doing it. It It's much, much deeper than this. You see, following Jesus, the Christian walk is not a list of do's and don'ts. It's responding to people in the influence of the Holy Spirit when you don't know what's going to happen next. And I can't give you a rule book. I can't give you a playbook that says when Rick, somebody shows up to work late, how you're supposed to act. That's something the Holy Spirit does. You endeavor. And the word means to hold weight up patiently. This is not just a list of do's and don'ts, you hold up under weight. We all have idiosyncrasies, like I said, but the context suggests that this is much more. It means that we patiently work and deal with immature believers. Some immature believers are still wrestling over Christian liberty. You know what we do with those people? We just endure with them. We just wait with them. We allow the Spirit of God to bring them along to maturity. And if we don't do that there will be no unity in North Valley Bible Church because there are people at all different levels of their spiritual maturity, and sometimes we're just going to act spiritually immature. Sometimes we're going to do things that are just unbiblical, and we know it, and we've got to go long-suffering and enduring with that person, and we've got to come, and we've got to correct them. We might have to correct them one time after another. We may have to forgive people 70 times 70, And that's what Paul is meaning here, that we just say, understand that this is where this person is at and I'm going to suffer long and I'm going to put up and I'm going to endure with it. The last thing that he says, he says, is something that takes really hard work. Verse 3, endeavoring. That's a word we don't use very often. It's also a participle. But, In this context, he's going to a new idea, and the participle is used as an imperative command here. This isn't a suggestion. He says, you do everything in your power. You do everything that is possible to keep. The Greek word, tereo, means to preserve. It means to guard. It means to do your utmost And so he wants us to do everything in our power to preserve the unity that's already in place. Look what he says here. How does he describe this unity? It's the unity, and then we've got a genitive, of the Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. The Spirit is the subject. What does the Spirit of God produce? The Spirit of Christ produces unity. It is the Spirit of Christ who baptizes us into one body. It is the Spirit of Christ who gives you and I spiritual gifts to produce unity in the body of Christ. So I have got to preserve what the Holy Spirit has already done. I don't make unity. You don't make unity. None of us do. The Spirit of Christ has produced the unity. And it's our job to endeavor to do everything in our power to keep it to preserve it in 414 we have this in ephesians for jesus himself is our peace who hath made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition so unity is preserved through humility let's go forward let's just kind of recap what we've gone First of all, I need to consider all that I used to be. I therefore exhort you to do this. I need to remember who I was before I met Christ. I was dead. Who am I now? I'm alive. I walked according to the course of this world. Now I have walked on Satan. Jesus Christ was manifested. Why, Keith? That he might destroy the works of the devil. I have been translated out of his authority and I have been transferred into the kingdom of his dear son. I need to remember that I was a child of wrath and now I'm a child of a king. This is what God has done for you and I. We need to remember it's a calling. God has invited us to this. Humility doesn't seek its own, it seeks the other person. Meekness means I am willing to be imposed upon. Long suffering means I don't get angry very quickly and I just endure with where people are at spiritually. You think about that in a marriage. If I don't, and she doesn't, especially her, if she doesn't just endure with us, we would have been gone a long time ago. She had to put up with a lot with this guy. I ain't not kidding you. And I'm not going to go into any details. (laughs) Unity, secondly, requires doctrinal purity. This doctrinal purity is centered... In a triune God. All the attributes of our triune God, that's what our unity is based on. It's based on doctrinal purity, verses 4 through 6. Notice that in each one of these verses, one of the persons of the Trinity is identified. In verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling. There is one Lord. In verse 5, one faith and one baptism. Verse 6, one God the Father of all, who's above all, through all, and in you all. We have a Trinitarian creed in the very first century. If you're talking to people and say, you know what, the Trinity didn't come until the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century, you can say, no, They already believed in the Trinity when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians. This is grounded in church history, the doctrine of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the one who produces the unity. And how does he do that? 1 Corinthians chapter 12 says that there's many, many members of the same body. If you want to turn over there, you can. I'm going to read it, and if you can just listen if you want, or you can turn over. The 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 really describes this unity for us. As the body is one, that's us, the body, the, the, the Christian church, and it has many members, diverse. But all the members of that one body, being, being many, are one body. So is Christ, for by One spirit, we are all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks. So Paul starts out with the word of the spirit being one and the body being one because he just had mentioned it in verse 3. We're to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace because there's one body and one spirit. Because this is what Christ has done in bringing us into the family of God. The Holy Spirit produces the unity, and it's to be maintained. And how do we do that? There's one body. And if there's different members, so how are we going to do that? How are we going to keep unity through this doctrinal understanding? What is Paul teaching here? I think what Paul is alluding to is that every member is to use their spiritual giftedness for the harmonious well-being of the one body. There's only one spirit who's placed you in this one body. And now you are to use your giftedness to contribute to the unity of the church. There's one body and one spirit. And look at this comparison clause at the end. Just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One hope of our calling. Think about the context of the book of Ephesians. The context is Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile who never worshiped together ever before. There was a middle wall that separated them. Jesus Christ himself is our peace who has broken down the middle wall of partition. Gentiles were not heirs of the promises of God. Now through the gospel, they are sharing as heirs of the gospel. Through the gospel, there is now only one body. The Gentiles were never partakers of the covenant of the Old Testament. Now they are partakers of the Old Testament covenant. And so he says, you were called in this one hope that God was going to bring everybody together, that those covenants were meant for all of you. There's one body, one baptism, just as you were called in this one hope that God was going to unite all people together under the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's the way that unity is to be kept. The mystery of the gospel that the Gentiles would share in this. Christ himself has made two of one man. Through him we both have access by one spirit. The mystery of the gospel is that Christ was preaching himself to the Gentiles that they might be fellow heirs of the same body. The second thing that Paul mentions here is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. All these things proceed from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism. All those things are focusing on Christ, the Lord. The faith that you and I believe in, the confession that baptism displays, all of those things are pointing to Christ. Faith in this context is is not the body of doctrinal truth. In fact, most of the time when the word faith is used, it's, using about, it's, it's use, usually referring to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When it has the direct article, it's referring to Christian doctrine. Jude is one of the few times it's used like that, where it says, earnestly contend for the faith that was once and delivered to you. It's not talking about the belief in Jesus. In that context, it's talking about the entire biblical Christian doctrine in the book of Jude. But in this passage, there's one Lord and one faith. In other words, there's only one gospel that saves you, and that is belief in the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, is the mystery. It is the faith in Him that is the mystery, that has been hidden through ages. It's through this one faith that Gentiles are joint shares of the unsearchable riches of of Christ. Let me just quote to you Colossians chapter 1 and verse 26. Remember that Colossians was written at the same time Ephesians was, written from prison. These letters were written simultaneously. They were circular letters. One church would read one, then would pass it on to the other one. So the Colossian church is reading their letter, while the Ephesian church is reading their letter, and then they were going to swap them out. But Paul is thinking of the same things pretty much when he's writing these. A little bit different twist in Colossians. But he's got that same mind and same, thing, same themes, and Colossians one twenty six is no exception. It says, the mystery which has been hidden from the ages and from generations. Doesn't that sound like Ephesians? Sounds like Ephesians chapter 3. So he's writing the Colossians the exact same thing. The mystery which was hidden from the ages and from generations, but has now been manifested to the saints, to whom God would make known what the riches of this glorious mystery is among the Gentiles, the rest of you can probably finish this for me, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. There's one Lord. There is one faith. It's Christ, the Lord, the hope of glory, and there's only one baptism. That baptism symbolizes your confession, your faith in the one Lord that you are buried with Christ. Your sins are forgiven. They are gone. Your old man has been nailed to the cross. You have been resurrected to new life, and there's only one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. There's one body and one spirit that makes us all one, just as we've been called in one hope of our calling, as we all use our gifts in harmonious uh, um, symphony with one another. We bring unity to our church. The last part of this triunal creed is God. One God. And I want us just to look at the prepositions. We're almost done here, so stay with me. These prepositions are important because they tell us about this mysterious, transcendent God. Let's look at the the, the prepositions. The first one is above. One God, the Father of all, the preposition above. The next one is through, and the next one is in. People have asked me to explain the Trinity, and I can't explain the Trinity. But I was reading a book written by, I can't even think of his name now, it doesn't matter. But I I want to give credit to him. You don't know who it is, neither do I right now. (laughs) I'll think of it in just a minute. He started the Institute for Creation Research. Uh, brilliant man, but he's got a an answer book. And in that, he talks about the Trinity. And he says, really, the Trinity is the best explanation for God, even if you don't understand it, because we all know that our God exists out of time, out of space, and without matter. How can you know a God like that. It blows my mind. I still can't even wrap my head around it. So what happened? God became flesh. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten of the Son who's in the bosom of the Father. He has declared Him. He has brought out all who the Father is. And now how can I experience God? Jesus said this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will send you another, and my Greek kids know this, it's alas, not heteros. I will send you another comforter who is just like me and represents me, who is me in the person of the Holy Spirit. And I will guide you into all truth. And that's what Paul is saying about our God. Our God is is above all. Our God is transcendent. Our God is all-powerful, omnipotent, omnipresent, everywhere at the same time. Our God pervades. He is through all. From a microscope to the cosmos, our God pervades everything. You look on a blade of grass, and our God is through that. You look at a sunset, and our God is through all of that. You look into your conscience, and God pervades through everything. God is knowable. But God is so personable. God is intimate. And God wants to have a personal relationship with every one of you. And you can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to the regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said, do not marvel. I said to you, you must be born again, born of the Spirit. And every believer can intimately walk with God. Our triune God is seen in these prepositions. The Father is transcendent. The Son is through whom? We know the Father. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. In verses 4 through 6, when we are doing all to maintain and preserve the unity of the Spirit, which is the body of Christ, we can only do so because unity springs from the profound unity of the Christian faith. Our faith is all about love and about unity. And that's where it springs from. To walk worthy worthiest calling requires humility by appreciating what we once were and remembering what Christ has accomplished. We are to be long-suffering with those around us and to bear with those who are immature in their faith. Without this, unity is impossible. We must make every effort in the body of Christ to preserve what's already been given to us. Let's walk in a way that's worthy of what you are called. You're a saint. You're one of God's chosen. You're one of His children. You are to be holy because He is holy. And we're to walk in a way that's worthy, that says, yes, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's bow with prayer. Father, God, what an injunction today. What a command. Paul pleads with us through the power of the Holy Spirit, through this letter, to live a life that is worthy that says Jesus Christ is my Lord and my Savior. God, that takes humility. It takes patience with other people around us. And Jesus, you modeled that God, we thank You. We thank You that our unity doesn't just spring from some subjective feeling. Our unity springs forth from the profound biblical doctrines of a triune God, the very foundation of Christianity. Lord God, I pray for North Valley Bible Church that God, that we would grow in unity, that we would grow in our love for one another. And God, that we would appreciate the doctrine of the triune God, how we can worship a God who's so far above us, how we can know a God who's so personal through Jesus, and how we can experience God by the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray these things for your glory in Jesus' name.